Bonjour, veuillez vous Please be seated. In the case Attorney General of Quebec et al. versus HV, for the appellant, Attorney General of Quebec, Maxime Say Cloutier, and Alexandre Duval, Sylvain Leboeuf, and Julie Da Silva. For the appellant, His Majesty the King, Eric Bernier, and Lina Theriot. For the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions, Julie Laborde, and Francois Lacasse. Attorney General of Ontario, Jennifer uh, Traherne, Valerie Bailey. For the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Grace Hessian, uh, Grace Hessian David, Catherine Roy. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Andrew Bark. For Lentime HV. For the respondent HV, Vincent Paquette and Tristan Desjardins. For the intervener, Association des Avocats de la Défense de Montréal, AADM, Reginal Victorin, Walid Hijazi. Inner Independent Criminal Defense Advocacy Society. Caroline uh, Sanini. Uh, Maître Sayer Cloutier, je pense. Mr. Sayer Cloutier. Justices of the Supreme Court, good morning. For the Attorney General of Quebec, I will begin by speaking of the impact of the Hills and Hillback decisions on the current case. Then I will discuss the reasonable foreseeable situation approach from your Morrison ruling in the case of a 15-year-old lured by a 21-year-old adult. And then my colleague will speak of uh, a, a past judiciary file and then we will speak about imprisonment. Let's begin with the impact of Hills and Hillback on the current file. First of all, we should remember that these rulings did not change the two-step test that must be carried out to determine if, there, uh, if a sentence is cruel and unusual punishment under the Charter. It was simply made clearer and both at the first and second step, a sentence must be for the actual 
defendant or delinquent and any hypothetical one based on three criteria, including this sentencing purposes and principles. And this is what we will examine today. If the test is co correctly applied, the court should come to the conclusion that the minimum mandatory of six months does in fact comply with section 12 and should be considered valid. Mr. Sayer Cloutier, for my part, one of the concerns that I have, and I, I'm not asking you to speak of it immediately, but because you're talking about the impact of Hills and Hillback on this file, is the nuance to be made between Hills and Hillback. That specifically with regard, with regard to the court's ruling. Hillback leaves room for a mandatory uh, minimum sentence. And I'm also wondering about the arguments by your learned friend representing the respondent. The hypothetical cases proposed were not entirely examined by the appeals court judge La Chance. For example, the Rennes case, which involves a person with a cognitive deficit. My question is then, does this distinction between Hills and Hillback uh, fall apart when the question of a cognitive defect uh, comes into play? one that could vulnerize, vul uh, make vulnerable rather, a case and would make any mandatory minimum vulnerable under the Constitution. Thank you, Justice Casarier. The first question as to the distinction between Hills and Hillback, the first thing that we can say is that in Hills, there was a declaration of invalidity based on the hypothesis, a reasonable hypothesis, hypothesis, where there was no possible harm for the public. The distinction is fundamental with regard to the case at Barr. All hypotheses that were uh, presented cannot, not all of them can uh, indicate no harm under Friesen. Under Friesen, the ruling was very clear. One must always assume that there is a potential harm to the child immediately and in the long term. And even if there is no harm, one must assume that there can be. Why? Because this type of sexual offense against children is extremely uh, uh, something that is something that where the harm is only apparent appears later if you're hit by a billet the harm is immediate but with this type of offense and according to the hypothesis in Hillback or in Hills rather it is clear it was clear that there was no harm but here no matter how a ca what case is presented, hypo hypothetical or other, or real that is, there 
we cannot deny that there is the possibility or genuine uh, existing harm. We have a minimum of six months in Hills and Himback. The minimums were four and five years. I think the court must expect that the higher or the looser the mandatory minimum is with regard to liberty, then the more difficult will be to demonstrate that this is cruel and unusual punishment. So this is an important distinction between the two. As for your second question, Justice Kazarer, on the distinction based on a cognitive deficit in past cases such as Darren, and my colleague will speak about what to do with these precedents. But what we can say is that, well, in fact, I'll say what Justice Jamal said yesterday, responding to an intervener. A cognitive deficit aren't found, cases aren't found only with luring. They're found throughout uh, the justice system. And in the question of Hillback, the cognitive deficit was not a de decisive element to the point of invalidating the mandatory minimums. Do we need to consider it? Yes. Is it possible that it could uh, change the game when it comes to invalidity? Of course, we must keep this in mind. When we go back to the three criteria analysis, the scope, the impact on the uh, delinquent and sentencing principles and objectives, we mustn't forget the scope of the offensive and especially the sentence and sentencing objectives. It's a balancing act. We shouldn't attribute too much weight to personal characteristics, either in the case at bar or in the case of a reasonable foreseeable situation. Question. We spoke about someone with a cognitive deficit. How should this work with GLADZU principles? I think that I think you'll find the answer in Hills at paragraph 98 where it says that subject 12 would not be violated because there's that when when we're talking about GLADU principles I believe that this answer you already find answer. We're not saying that GLADU principles should not be taken into account, it's just that they're not decisive. Sometimes a single objective or a single personal characteristic, that is the delinquent's characteristic, may lead to a declaration of invalidity and that is ex exactly against this court's section 12 test as specified in Hills. I think that the uh, respondent makes lots of arguments with the uh, regard to proportionality. 
And this court has been very clear in Fasas Sede that the proportionality principle is a constitutional one protected by the Charter, that was the question asked, and this court very clearly said no. It's a principle that the legislator can contravene, but without violating Section 12. We understand that the court in Hills, and what this was already said in Noor, we understand that the bar is, uh, or that the threshold is very high and what we're saying is that not only in the respondent's case and in the but in the hypothetical cases there is no violation of section 12 i'll draw your attention to what has been done practically speaking what was done in hillback and we'll remember that there were five possible scenarios only two were retained as being reasonable the uh, extreme cases that had nothing to do with the case or uh, extremes at the other end that didn't make sense or uh, rely on judicial experience, they must be uh, discarded. Even if these cases took place in real life, and that has also been said in Hills, where at 92, paragraph 92, it says that the most extreme cases that may be present, that may occur or that could occur one day. And the, the respondent might say, well, these actually took place. But in Hills, it's said that even if they have actually occurred, they can be uh, discarded, removed from the analysis. Question, to what extent does Friesen ask us to re-examine the basic conditions that uh, motivate hypothetical you know. cases, for example, the relevance of D and de facto consent, consent? We spoke at length about this yesterday. descriptions that aren't current as to harm experienced by a child. Les, les Should we rule out examples that are from the past? I'll be careful in answering. In certain cases, yes. In others, no. For prior cases, and my colleague can give more details on this, they do retain their usefulness in determining if X case falls under the offense. But regarding the sentence given according to that precedent, it's clear to us that if the sentences were given at a time when the knowledge that we have today, as is explained in Friesen, is different, those cases will certainly not be retained regarding the sentencing and even less regarding the constitutional analysis because that constitutional analysis would also be biased regarding the proportionality aspect. If we also look at the appellant's factum question, but my concern 
does not pertain to this sentence of itself because we understand Friesen said that prior cases are no longer to be used. I understand that. I'm talking about the facts of the situation, which perhaps would have led a judge in the past or a litigant to adduce certain facts that may no longer be so pertinent after Friesen. Answer, absolutely. And if we remain practical uh, here in this uh, case at bar, Ms. Hull from the uh, Nova Scotia Appeals Court is a case that wasn't ruled out but that should have been. The uh, hypothesis was put forward and first of all, it's a 12-month mandatory minimum there. And in this case, it's six months. So the sentencing here is less. However, in that case, there was a, a teacher and a student. And the hypothesis does not say that it's less serious for a 15-year-old, a young teenager. And in the Nova Scotia case, but it seems that we're based on uh, prejudices and myths that are being confused to say that it is less serious for a teenager and even less if that teenager is a boy to have sexual relations with their teacher and if we continue on into this uh, prejudice you'll see what was used in the Nova Scotia Appeals Court when it said that after the luring there was fondling and fondling is not called fondling in 151 in the wording of the offense. So it is clearly uh, condemned by this court in Friesen. But here I want to draw the line with the case at bar. Question. The court called the child's consent a mitigating factor. So regarding what happened in Wood, even if what happened then could no longer happen today, should that case be ruled out as part of our constitutional analysis? Because even if the same facts could be reproduced again, uh, there are essential differences between then and now. Absolutely. And regarding the fondling, we can't retain here what was said at the appeal court because it's a, it's a lexical term. That's what we were saying yesterday. It's more than that. It is more than just an inappropriate term that should not be used by courts. When uh, terms like de facto consent and fondling are used, the uh, offense is implicitly trivialized. So this hypothesis must be ruled out. retaining the hypothetical case as it is, saying that the facts could be the same here and the six-month uh, sentence could be cruel and unusual, I think that would be a serious error. The same is true for Randall, which is the second example case that had been retained by the Superior Court and the Appeal Court. In Randall, what was maintained as being uh, mitigating for Mr. Randall, there were two things. First, 
the minimum mandatory minimum at that time had been changed after Morrison, and we know what happened with Morrison before this court. So of course that added a bias into the mix, and the judge retained the police operation as a mitigating factor, and that is also based on knowledge that existed at the time that we have now that say that it is useful and necessary in Canada to uh, fight against serious crimes. So even though that uh, litigant was dealing with an undercover officer, it could have been a child. And so the fact that there was not a real child in that case doesn't take away from the blameworthiness of the appellant. So 90 days were, were given here because there were no uh, priors and because there was no real child. It was because it was an undercover police officer. But obviously the facts are the same and this is problematic. And if the Hills test is not reevaluated, which integrates the learnings from Friesen, this doesn't work. There's no reasonable hypothesis regarding the sex crime uh, mandatory minimum. Now, regarding the test itself, I'll go through it with you test by test. In the respondent's factum and talk about what's foreseeable and what isn't. I would like to refer you to the appellant's factum and the, the appellants do not deny that the scope of the offense is broad. That is on purpose, that is what the legislator intended. Because the ways that the offense can be committed are broad and the internet is broad as you heard yesterday from my uh, colleague from the Director of uh, Public Prosecutions. So it's not uh, on, by mistake that the legislator had such a broad scope. And why? It's obvious that it is to protect children. And clearly that broadness is restricted by the mens rea that has to be found in the perpetration of the offense. And I would refer you to Morrison to paragraph 153, which I will read for you. Luring is a serious infraction that uh, targets children who are among the most vulnerable in society. The threshold for mens rea is high and blameworthiness is high. This offense can be committed in many circumstances in many ways, which is also the case for other infractions under the criminal code, so it's not unique to luring. And it must be proved that the uh, that the offender purposely, deliberately communicated with a child and that it was to facilitate the commission of an offense with the child and one year imprisonment for the MMP is not uh, unreasonable and here it is being uh, applied but for six months. Question. Mr. Cloutier, I'm sure you'll give me one of your yes or no answers, but in Morrison, after Friesen, 
there was the uh, Moldaver and a judge, a justice's Moldaver and Karakatsinis offered uh, comments that could perhaps be useful to the case at bar today. And you have just quoted to us a paragraph suggesting that this is uh, relevant. So what has survived from Friesen that pertains to this case? Answer. The uh, director of public prosecutions is not, does not agree with that part of Friesen. If we look at the dissenting opinion in Canada, there were certain cases of uh, sentences in the community, intermittent imprisonment, and all of these cases are listed and were handed down either uh, when the 2012 or 2015 rulings had not been implemented or it happened before this court's ruling in Friesen. So regarding the ranges of sentences that were given out at the time, and I understand it's only in 2019, so not so long ago, uh, but Friesen was handed down since then. So as you said yesterday, this has an impact. And I think it does a good job illustrating what Friesen describes as a learning period back at that time. We're all learning, we're all, and legislators also had to learn and to revise the code certain, uh, many times rather, and had to come back to these ranges. And you'll see in the case that bar, the ranges, the question of ranges is like a hot potato. Everyone agrees that the range between 12 to 24 uh, months is no longer the applicable range. But what is the new range that should exist at the time? Uh, Moldaver at the uh, Ontario Appeal Court said in 2011 that it could be from three to five years before the legislative amendments that I just mentioned. There's something else I think we should also refer to. I believe it's very important. It's paragraph 114 of the Friesen decision. This. At tab 10 of our condensed book. It's a, towards the end of 114, and I'll read it out. The message is, uh, this is the message that the court sends in Friesen. We have, uh, it is incumbent on us to provide an overall message that is clear. That message is that mid-single-digit penitentiary terms for sexual offenses against children, so here that's all sexual offenses because it's luring, are normal. And that upper single-digit and double-digit penitentiary terms should be neither unusual nor reserved for rare or exceptional circumstances. And that was not put in practice by many Canadian courts and judges. That message should have been implemented when it comes to 
applicable ranges for luring and there should have been inflationary effect. It's at the paragraph 114. So that message must be integrated into the analysis that must be carried out regarding the gross disproportionality and clearly that was not done here. Question. But we know that ranges can increase and in the constitutional analysis we can be led to a different conclusion that the minimum threshold must take into account what we learned in Hills. And it wouldn't be incompatible to say on the one hand these are very serious crimes that deserve serious sentences but earlier what you called a broad scope of the offense might catch individuals that don't deserve sentences like that. In other words, I don't know if 114 resolves everything. Answer. Certainly not. Uh, that's true that 114 alone does not resolve it, but it's something we need to keep in mind. When the court mentions this, and I believe they meant it mentioned it on the uh, increases in mandatory minimums and the legislative changes that took place, so 114 uh, tells us that in a more clear way so that judges understand what uh, was meant. The message is don't be afraid to deviate from old precedents. And unfortunately there is still a hesitancy to uh, deviate but legislators here uh, called for a mandatory minimum of six months and that is not incompatible with what was said here that the uh, five years or more would be normal and not uh, unusual. The disproportionate, uh, grossly disproportionate isn't found here because there's broad discretion in the respondents Facto. Uh, it mentions the 12 to 14 range and says it's not useful for summary offenses. At uh, two years less a day is the same thing. But even if there's a summary conviction, the range provides good discretion to the judge. And if there are exceptional cases that may lie at the bottom of the spectrum, uh, absence of aggravating factors, um, mitigating circumstances such as the accused is indigenous or uh, there's a some sort of cognitive deficit, then Well, when you look at what's said here in Friesen, then you have to, you could consider other possibilities. Let me go to the second criteria now, the effects on the delinquent. The first thing that should be said is that there was no uh, solid evidence that 
the that uh, detaining the respondent, imprisoning the respondent, would it be cruel and unusual punishment? It may harm his rehabilitation, that was claimed. But that comes back to what we are saying. Rehabilitation is another criterion that should be uh, considered under Friesen, citing your decision in Rayo, Caz uh, Justice Cazareux. There is an order of priority of uh, objectives to be prioritized, and dis, uh, dissuasion and denunciation is at the top. Deterrence and denunciation. And yet here, 178.01 is not it being upheld. Do the objectives of deterrence and dissuasion? Do they alone justify a jail sentence, a prison sentence, rather? It, the legislator has given, the, has made them the priority, and this court confirmed it in Friesen. Friesen, is that enough to justify a mandatory minimum? I'd say no, because you still need to analyze the three criteria. If you look at the third criteria of Hills and ignore the other two criteria, yes, you could say so, but I think it's important to look at all three criteria, but deterrence and dissuasion and denunciation are the most important factors. The idea is to protect children. It's not exaggerated to claim that deterrence and dissuasion, denunciation are not the most important. We're uh, respecting 718.01, respecting Friesen, but for some accused, the dissuasive effects of a sentence, the denunciatory impact of a sentence are not as important because of personal characteristics. And the public won't accept the message if denouncing someone who doesn't understand fully because of cognitive problems. In other words, deterrence and uh, denunciation are not the most important priority always. You can respect the legislators' objectives without ignoring what Friesen and Rayo have said. We don't need to completely eliminate uh, deterrence and dissuasion. There's not only the idea of how the offender will be impacted, but also the message sent to the sent to society. When a mandatory minimum is handed out, one sends the message to Canadians that this offense is so serious that no matter what the circumstances, it is unacceptable for an offender to receive a minor sentence. The idea is to protect the public. 
there are various scenarios and cases that suggest that imprisonment only harms people. I think you need to keep in mind that imprisonment is a legislative choice, parliamentary choice, because people can, after a prison sentence, lead a better life and the sentence can have had a good impact on them. Yes, the objectives of deterrence and exemplarity are important, but they're not the only argument for constitutional validity. When you consider the hypothesis of an accused with cognitive defect or someone who does not understand is that an issue? It's a circumstance that can be taken into consideration in sentencing, but it is not the decisive factor. It will not lead to the invalidity of the uh, mandatory min minimum sentence because it's not something you find in a reasonably foreseeable situation. Either the person is uh, able to stand trial or the person is not. Perhaps there may be a cognizant deficit. This can be taken into account in the sentencing range. But what we want to say is that um, cognitive deficiency, well, you can't take a case and say the cognitive deficiency is so great that the person doesn't understand his own uh, criminal behavior and then declare that person uh, guilty. The mens rea, the, the, the degree of mens rea necessary is very high. There's a very high threshold. My colleague will discuss Darren, that the person didn't understand what he was doing. That is a genuine case, but it raises serious questions. If the offender in Darren uh, I understand there was a guilt in that case, but if the person doesn't understand what's going on, then that case alone must not be decisive in the analysis. You need to look at all the jurisprudence and a mental deficiency. Often you look at those type of cases. Uh, well, you can plead that an accused has a a psych psychological disorder. There are many psychological disorders in the DSM that uh, could explain why an accused behaves in a criminal way. If we take all of them into account, then we we're setting aside the legislator's intent to um, to imprison, incarcerate offenders who have committed sexual offenses. The legislator has decided that uh, there is incarceration, jail time, for all sexual offenses, all these types of offenses, and this is not cruel and unusual punishment. But the problem 
is thinking that this holds true for all cases, I'd like to mention the John case. The respondent mentions this case, and the, in this case, the Ontario Court of Appeal discussed a reasonable situation with regard to uh, the exchange of pornography. Even though the hypothesis does not include luring, the impact could be modified to be considered in the case of luring. A man, aged 18, sends messages to her, to his 17-year-old girlfriend, asking her to send him an explicit photo of herself. He then sends the photo to his friend. and cites the sharp exception. The 18-year-old, in which the 18-year-old does not transmit the message but keeps it herself for himself. The damage is relatively limited then for the 17-year-old. There's a photo alluring harm that is perhaps somewhat limited. I'd like to know if you think that that situation, the hypothetical situation, hypothetical situation is reasonable. If a six-month mandatory minimum sentence would be disproportionate in that case. That's an extreme case. We've said that even extreme cases can be uh, excluded, but it is foreseeable, absolutely foreseeable. What I see that's problematic in what you've just cited is the absence of harm there was a there was a romantic relations no no i'm not saying there was an absence of harm i'm saying that if you admit that there is always harm with this type of communication it's relatively limited in this case well then you would be at the bottom of the spectrum at the floor. That was the answer given to you yesterday as well. If we're in a reasonable, foreseeable situation that's that's at the bottom of the spectrum, th then are we at the bottom of the spectrum if it's uh, if the harm is minimal? But we're saying six months wouldn't be exaggerated given the test under Section 12. If in John you declare the Section 12 invalid and uh, then you're examining mainly the accused personal circumstances and forgetting about the legislative purpose. And it must be remembered that under Friesen, one must assume that there is a potential, there, there is a, a potential of harm. Uh, I'd like to talk about what I, uh, uh, what I examined with my colleagues yesterday after yesterday's. when it comes to harm, 
to follow up on what my colleague has said. Yesterday, Friesen said there is an it was mentioned that Friesen meant, uh, speaks of inherent harm for a victim. There's the problem of assessing the inherent harm. I note that, unless I'm mistaken, even in this case before us, we don't know exactly what the harm was, the harm experienced by the victim. We have a lot of information that's very moving on how the accused's life, accused life was uh, shaken up, and I don't want to minimize that. But if we have to calculate the harm, we don't always have the full details. It's not in every file that you have a victim statement, especially if we're talking about a, a child. That's a concern of mine because how can we take this into account? Answer. I believe we can find the answer to that. And you're right, Justice Kassirer, regarding the victim's harm. But the Superior Court and the Court of Appeals seem to agree on something here. Let's remember that in the respondent's case, the child that was lured was the man's niece. And he even went so far as to hire her. He was the employer to manipulate uh, the girl and touched her breast through her clothing and her thigh. At 17.8.2 III, it says that uh, abuse of authority, as we see in this case, must be seen as aggravating factors. So I want for us to visualize this. Imagine the consequences that this had on the family itself. The family was shattered. Do we need further proof? Yes, certain uh, members of the family certainly would have had to choose their side in this case. Just imagine the impact on the family. And in Friesen, it said the impact is not only on the victim, it's also on the family. And that's even without having that proof, because we can see the proof on the family and the victim. So, question at paragraph 47 of the Court of Appeal decision, right at the end, when the court says, though we recognize the inherent harm of this sexual offense and that we strongly denounce it, in this case there is no um, particular proof of harm to the victim. Was that an error by the court to say that? Yes, and in our factum we address this. It seems to be a comment by the Court of Appeal that was not founded because if there was particular evidence it would have to be taken into account by the judge but all of the evidence it does not make the harm any lesser for the child and I think that the reason behind that is what you have uh, alluded to justice uh, how can a child victim feel 
free to go complain to the police and to get into the justice process. We're talking about the man's niece and the fact that the victim may not have wanted to uh, give further evidence should certainly not be of end up being as a benefit to the accused. I think Canadians would agree with that. Question. So this error that you see, does it have an impact on the decision we must take on the constitutionality of the um, provision in question here? Answer, absolutely, yes. Clearly, this is going against what was said in Friesen. And yesterday, there was much talk of the Hills test, that it's not a purely mathematical test. When the Court of Appeal says that the Justice of the Superior Court should have stopped and talked about the 33%, that is a very serious mistake. The analysis from Noor was not carried out, which was specified in Hills. And the respondent says it's just obiter. And they say, anyway, the Superior Court Justice uh, overturned the decision, so there's no problem. And that also is a mistake. Because, of course, if the Court of Appeal said there was no problem at the second stage, it says that there was simply a mathematical disproportionality at the first stage. And this bias, this creates a bias for everything in the following steps. So it suggests that, that the process should be looked at piecemeal, piece by piece, instead of as a whole. And before I cede the floor to my colleague, I would like to refer you to the Legic decision from the Court of Quebec 2019. I'll bring you to paragraph 23 and thereafter, and this will help us to look at what the court said in Friesen regarding the uh, material harm that may be difficult to perceive. So this is regarding the consequences on the family and the victim. So there are uh, problems of self-esteem, the victim feels self-conscious about their body and was able to be manipulated. There are panic attacks, uh, increased, uh, the girl's grades in school plummeted, and she started to harm herself to get through this difficult period. She consulted a psychologist during for two years, and she, uh, to this day, still has uh, a lack of confidence in herself because of this experience being manipulated. Uh, the parents saw the scarring on their daughter's arms and legs, and even had serious anxiety uh, seeing these and had to remove uh, sharp objects from the house. And the younger sister always had to keep an eye on the victim. So this is serious harm. And in this case, there was an exchange of photos like in the John case. Question. Yes, but I have a question. Were the sentences increased? Uh, considering did, were not the sentences increased because of the harms that you just mentioned 
in a sense it has already been done because it applies everywhere. So why should there also be a mandatory minimum that is applied to everyone in every case even if it isn't applied exactly as stipulated in Friesen because for me there are two things. Friesen has already done its work but here we have a constitutional mechanism because this applies to everyone. So I would like to know why there must be a mandatory minimum to do something that Friesen has already done answer. To answer you, it's the choice of Parliament because deterrence and dissuasion according to Parliament uh, happens through mandatory minimums. But I'm n not talking about whether or not this is the best choice. I'm asking whether it's a constitutional choice. Answer. Well, I'll refer you to Friesen. In Friesen, this court stated that significantly increasing mandatory minimums made sense to protect children. And I think the same answer can be applied here. And now I will uh, leave the last few minutes for my colleague. Thank you. Good day, Justices. I'll briefly talk to the, uh, speak to the test for intervention. I would like to come back to Justice Martin's question on the hypothetical case in Johns. Uh, with all due respect, that was not a case of luring. An 18-year-old who receives from another 18-year-old a photo of a minor cannot, uh, cannot. Uh, deliberately communicate with a minor. So there's not a, an aspect of luring question. But he asked his girlfriend to send him the photo. But here, there is also no communication. So if he's not communicating with his 18-year-old friend, he's not communicating with a minor. And here, luring is uh, specifically described as including communication. So if the 18-year-old is communicating with another 18-year-old, yes, it is another uh, offense, but it is a distribution of child pornography between two 18-year-olds. That's not the luring aspect. The luring comes in when the 18-year-old man used a means of telecommunication to ask for the photo. Yes, I understand the scenario, but in my opinion, uh, there's no uh, luring, but it, but it is an offense of possession of child pornography. But the second 18-year-old would have had to communicate directly with the 17-year-old in order for him to be uh, found guilty of luring. And now we're talking about the exception to sharp, uh, in sharp, which is an extreme circumstance. And yes, it is uh, an extreme case, and it is not reasonably foreseeable that should be applied to luring. In the case before us, this is another question, but I think that that 
is really a stretch to apply John to uh, our case today, which has to do with luring. In all, with all due respect, Madam Justice. Regarding luring and the listed cases, I think that this is a question that is asked that, that comes up regarding sexual assault. And it's also a question for all mandatory minimums. A judge, when they need to decide whether something is reasonably foreseeable, and when another decision is handed down from another jurisdiction or province, and is uh, faced with cases that are completely different, and to quote Justice Karakatsanis and Johnson, is that judge then obligated under any obligation because of these rulings handed down by a different judge? And I think the answer is no, uh, because it's not a situation of appeal or revision. And this judge now has to decide the mandatory minimum that should apply. And that's what happened at the Superior Court, which carried out a very careful review of the case law and says in paragraph 71, among others, that the decision to suspend a sentence is uh, unfit. And under Hood, the decision goes directly to all of the uh, mistakes that my colleague Mr. Cloutier mentioned. So I think that there is some misunderstanding here of the reasonable foreseeability test, at least in Quebec, which must be corrected. Here, I think that a court must have the opportunity to rule out certain scenarios and certain sentences. That does not mean that the factual scenarios can't be taken into account, but there's no obligation for the judge under those cases because it's not a case of uh, review. Uh, well, yes, question. It's just another way to say that Friesen changed the ranges. I agree with you. It changed the sentences. Yes, absolutely. And that has to do with uh, sexual assaults, but it also applies to other areas where freezing would not be applied. So there has to be wiggle room left, because if not, we have to find the nicest case in Canada, go fishing for it, where the judge gave a certain sentence, and that would then become the reference for the rest of Canada. I think, rather, uh, a judge should not be under any obligation because of those other rulings handed down. And to come back to the question on 156 of Hills, I think here there is a, an appellate court that noticed that there were constitutional analysis mistakes and needs to uh, does not need to uh, defer to the first instance. Very quickly, before I uh, leave my colleague two minutes on reincarceration, I would like to make a distinction. There are mental health problems, but they in no way affect the seriousness of the offense. They have no impact on the blameworthiness either. And in Darren, there's a confusion that, for example, the blameworthiness could be impacted by that. 
but it is no less blamable to be uh, assaulted by someone who has mental health problems and it's no less serious. It's very relevant in the analysis. Confusion. But this is what is confusing here. In Darren, the judge talked about a relationship of trust. I, I think this is the Alberta decision concerning uh, this long relationship of trust. And this relationship is as abuse to invite the victim to take part in sexual relations. The accused uh, says, I, you know, I spoke about your mother. I spoke to this about your mother and she agrees. This is a blame. There's a high degree of blameworthiness in that case. Given that there's only two more minutes, I'll let my talk, my colleague talk about reincarceration. Perhaps the uh, chair will give enough time to your colleague. I don't understand why Darren should be uh, excluded. Darren, at tab two under your colleagues, in your colleagues' condensed book, the basis of the decision, paragraph 38, regarding the seriousness of the, uh, the serious of the case. When it comes to sentencing, nonetheless, the, uh, the well, you can see the conclusion at 47. It says the specific behaviors, the specific factors don't make uh, the offense less morally brainworthy, brain, blameworthy. Uh, it's not because a person has a mental deficiency that the offense is less blameworthy. Here you have a, you're dealing with a weighing exercise and all the personal circumstances have weighed more heavily in the balance to the detriment of other objectives, denunciation and deterrence. I understand your point. I'll give you two minutes. Mr. Bernier, Bernier, rather. Hello, justices. Luring is a serious a crime that undermines children's security and, and increases their vulnerability. vulnerability. The seriousness, as well as the high degree of moral blameworthiness, requires the reincarceration of the offender to uh, I would like to briefly review the history the respondent appeared August 22nd the 2017 entered a guilty plea September 17th 2018 the sentence was handed down August, uh, November 25, 21st, 2019, and at that time, the matter of invalidity was raised. The first sentence 
was two years suspended sentence, a two-year suspended sentence, and 150 hours of community work. The prosecutor appealed. The decision was made in February 2021. The appeals court judge should have applied principles regarding reincarceration when an unfit sentence was handed down in the first case. Refer to paragraph 169 in the appeals court. The judge said that a 24-month sentence was appropriate. Conditional sentence was appropriate. She increased the sentence to 90 days intermittent incarceration. The appellant appealed, the appeal court, appeals court heard, and the decision was made in January 2022. At no time did the state request that the sentence be suspended. Given the exceptional circumstances, despite the high moral blameworthiness, we believe that reincarnation is not required in this case. Just let me understand if our decision, and we haven't reached it yet, was to uh, grant the appeal. Should we be taking account of what you are saying? Yes, essentially, the public safety ministers agrees that reincarceration is not required. If the the offender has already spent four months intermittently imprisoned, given that the Superior Court has mentioned the effect of rehabilitation, we do not think reincarceration is necessary. Thank you very much. Hello, uh, Ms. Laborde. Justices, hello. The Director of Public Prosecutions argued in written submissions that there are three criteria for a finding of grossly disproportionate, a grossly disproportionate sentence. I'd like to talk about three specific points. Yesterday, at uh, the very end of my arguments, I talked about the mental disorder and provided a specific case and will provide a specific case. To begin with, 
I will mention two other points. To begin with, the impact of a mandatory minimum. The fact that there is a mental disorder does not mean that there is less blameworthiness. Uh, and so you cannot justify a, a lighter sentence with the presence of mental disorder. Disorder. I'd like to mention the Sinclair case, Manitoba Court of Appeal, 2022. Paragraphs 49 to 55 are relevant, as well as other paragraphs. There was a guilty plea with regard to extortion, production of pornography, and so on. It turned out that Mr. Sinclair had a autism spectrum disorder and was also and also had fetal, dis, fetal alcohol syndrome. The Court of Appeal had to determine to what extent this mental disorder uh, undermined his moral responsibility. In light of the evidence adduced, the court determined that despite this uh, disorder, he was highly skilled at manipulating psychologically the victim and was fully aware of the extent of his behavior, the criminal extent of his behavior. So despite this mental disorder, Mr. Sinclair was fully or highly blameworthy and he did not deserve a sentence at the low range, lowest range of sentences. With regard to the grossly disproportionate factor, three cases were mentioned of community uh, community work. The idea was to demonstrate to what extent the mandatory minimum is grossly disproportionate. We're saying that you need to be prudent when doing a Section 12 analysis in the context of these cases. Why? Because they do not demonstrate gross, that grossly, dis, uh, dis, grossly disproportionate sentence. What we're saying is that a suspended sentence before we can have a suspended sentence, the judge, judge must be convinced that a two-year sentence is not a suitable sentence. In the three cases cited by the respondent, there were minimum sentences imposed, mandatory minimum. The problem is that according to the hypothesis that the offender must serve time in an institution, what if the offend offender uh, con continually breaks a conditional sentence, sentence conditions if the sentence is conditional.
a suspended sentence has a notion of dissuasiveness. When a respondent claims, when the respondent claims the uh, unfortunate counsel is speaking very quickly and virtually it's extremely difficult to understand her. The provision under 742.11b, with all respect to the judges regarding the decision of cruel and unusual punishment, a suspended The idea that the uh, judges must be must show deference toward the legislative objective. This court has several times repeated this principle of deference in Lloyd and Bissonnette recently. This brings me to my last point: the length of the minimum mandatory mandatory minimum, rather. Article 718.2e mentions that a sentence can be moderated for an Indigenous offender. The impact of the sentence of historical factors on a sentence will depend on the circumstances of each offence and each offender. In Gladu, this court specified that 718.2e must not be interpreted as requiring an automatic reduction of the sentence. In Sharma, the court specified that Article 7182E does not guarantee that an Indigenous offender is immune to a minimum sentence. Incarceration should be reserved only for offenders who have committed a serious offence or have a high degree of moral blameworthiness, and that is the case here. We would also like to draw our attention to the relatively short period of incarceration provided for with a mandatory minimum. The judges uh, have the instruction to uh, follow the principles of 718.2 when it comes to mandatory minimums. In some cases, sentences may be superior to mandatory minimums because there is an entire range of sentences possible. She, de manière plus concrète, la sanction 
à la communauté dont il fait partie et and perhaps even remedy the harms caused. To conclude, as this court said in Sharma, a 7182E is a legislative provision that, yes, conveys a very important element, but it is not constitutional. The judge's obligation to consider systemic and historic factors can only have precedence over their obligation to impose a proportionate sentence to the blameworthiness and the seriousness of the uh, offense. Thank you very much. Merci, Matt. Thank you. <clears throat> Jennifer uh, Traherne. Good morning, Justices. In my time this morning, I wish to address the court on what I submit is the effect of this court's decision in Friesen on the appropriate sentence for child luring in both indictable and summary proceedings in the normal course or the normal case and the interaction of that normal sentencing range with some of the reasonable hypotheticals which have been raised this morning. My submission to you is that drawing on Friesen, sentences for child luring in both indictable and summary offenses will generally be well above the mandatory minimum punishment such that even in cases with particularly mitigating factors the mandatory minimum will be constitutional and represents the minimum threshold of blameworthiness for the offense. So if I may, I propose to address you on what Ontario submits is the general range of sentence for indictable proceedings for child luring, and then I will turn to how that general range informs the general range of sentence in summary proceedings. In Friesen, this court declined to establish a national starting point or range of sentence for child sexual offenses. Nonetheless, at paragraph 114 of Friesen, as has already been alluded to this morning, this court sent a clear message that in the normal course, child sexual offenses should attract a mid-single-digit penitentiary term. In Ontario's submission, that is true not only in the context of hands-on child sexual offenses, but applies equally to child luring. In saying so, I rely on this court's comment in Friesen at paragraph 44, where this court affirmed that child luring is a sexual offense against children to which the principles outlined in Friesen apply. Indeed, in my submission, this makes sense as many of the same considerations that animated this court's decision in Friesen apply equally in the child luring context. As this court noted in Friesen, incidents of child luring more than doubled between 2010 and 2017 and new technologies enable offenders to access children in new ways. Where a real child is involved, many of the harms that this court identified in Friesen will occur in the case of child luring, in part because through the use of technology, offenders can commit sexual offenses against children remotely without ever having to be in the same room as the child. In the process of grooming children, offenders often send the child child pornography or masturbate in front of the child online or invite the child to touch themselves okay. sexually. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a hypothetical that's quite different, but I think is caught by the offense. You have half-siblings, ages 18 and 17, and they admit to having a mutual attraction for one another. And the 18-year-old proposes a liaison, a sexual liaison, but the 17-year-old says, no, that would harm the family. But nonetheless, there was an intent. Uh, there, was a, there was a text used to put forward this proposed liaison. There was an intent to facilitate incest. 
and the, there was a communication by the internet. Now, it seems to me that this is, comes within the uh, scope of luring. Is it really proportionate in any way, or is it grossly disproportionate to say the 18-year-old uh, uh, goes to prison for six months, and, 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 and that's that? I mean, the problem here is that the range is so broad because the luring relates to such a, a, a wide range of offenses. Someone said 20 offenses. I didn't count them. I'll take their word for it. And it's so immense a spectrum that given the framework for analysis of reasonable hypotheticals, any one of which, if it results in a grossly disproportionate sentence, means that this is about as vulnerable a type of provision as you can conceive of. And to say that in almost all instances, six months is warranted is, is undoubtedly an accurate statement. But the test isn't what the vast preponderance of instances warrants. It's, it's, the, it's the marginal ones, but that are still reasonable hypotheticals. And so, I mean, that's, that's an example where putting the 18-year-old the in prison for six months, to me, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's completely out of whack with the moral culpability and the, and the uh, consequences. Yes, thank you, Justice Rowe. And what I would say uh, in response to that, and then uh, more generally in response to many of the reasonable hypotheticals that have been proposed, is I would um, ask this court uh, to employ the language that was used in Morrison of reasonably foreseeable applications of the law. And, and when that language is used in my submission, some of the hypotheticals proposed, including respectfully, I would say, Justice Rowe, the, the hypothetical uh, that you've just described um, fall away from the analysis. And the reason that I say that is because in my submission, it would be very unlikely in that scenario uh, and also in the John scenario um, for the offense ever to be charged in the absence of anything Right, but here's, here's the point. You're now relying upon prosecutorial discretion. Are we allowed within our framework to say, well, of course they wouldn't charge them. That would be an absurd thing. It just, it just wouldn't arise. I mean, haven't we said reliance upon prosecutorial discretion cannot save, uh, cannot be the safety net itself? Uh, well, respectfully, the point I, I don't wish to make, um, the point I'm not making is that we rely on prosecutorial discretion, but rather uh, that that's not the kind of scenario that would ever come to the attention of the authorities in the first place uh, and, and is therefore not a reasonably foreseeable application of the law. If some harm results, uh, if the if the half-siblings uh, ultimately did engage in some form of, of sexual um, relations or in the John case, if the uh, boyfriend ultimately distributes the intimate image without the girlfriend's consent, then those scenarios are more likely to come to the attention of the authorities. And then those scenarios in my submission warrant uh, the mandatory minimum sentence uh, in, given in the cases. Uh, so I would just uh, ask this court to consider carefully what is a reasonable a reasonably foreseeable application of the law. And the other point I would make related to that is in many of the reasonable hypotheticals put forward uh, by various parties, many of the um, 
details of the cases have been sanitized from the reasonable hypotheticals. And I understand certainly uh, they can't be entirely detailed, but uh, there was a recognition in Hills that there is a move towards more detailed reasonable hypotheticals uh, than had been originally the case when the Section 12 jurisprudence was first developed. And I would ask this court to consider looking at the facts from which these reasonable hypotheticals are drawn, looking at the actual cases, because often what has been completely sanitized from those cases is the harm that was caused um, to, to the complainant in those cases. Um, and, and it's important for that uh, in order to honor the message of this court in Friesen, that that harm also factor in uh, to the constitutional analysis. I just wanted to address briefly in my time remaining uh, my submission that the, in the summary context, sentences at or near the high end of the summary range should also be the norm. And again, in my submission, that's important because if that's the norm, uh, then there is considerable daylight, if I can put it that way, between uh, the normal sentence in summary offenses and the mandatory minimum sentence, which is only six months in this case, and allows for significant mitigating factors to be considered. Um, in Solowon, this court made clear that in the context of a hybrid offense, the appropriate sentence on summary proceedings is not one that has been scaled down from the maximum on summary conviction simply because the offender would likely have received less than the maximum had they been prosecuted by indictment. Rather, a court is to apply the established sentencing principles to determine the appropriate sentence within the range of sentence available for that procedure. And the high end of the available sentencing range is not reserved for the worst offense and worst offender. Uh, in my submission, if all the principles from Friesen are applied equally in the context of summary proceedings, and, and in my submission, there's no reason why they wouldn't be applied equally in the context of summary proceedings, then uh, the, the consequence of that is that the, in the normal course, the appropriate sentence, even in summary proceedings, would be at or near the high end of the summary range, again, ultimately supporting the constitutionality of the mandatory minimum sentence, which is considerably lower than the high end of the range. I see that I am almost out of time. Uh, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Uh, Grace uh, Hessian David. Thank you. Uh, before Saskatchewan gets into its scripted comments, uh, this province would just like to pick up with some of the questions that were posed to my friend AG Quebec and AG uh, Ontario, and especially on this issue of some of the reasonable uh, hypotheticals that have been discussed this morning. And in particular, uh, with respect to the one that Justice Rao just posed and, and the John hypothetical, the province of Saskatchewan just would ask this court to consider uh, where in those hypotheticals is the psychological manipulation that was discussed all through the Rao decision? Where is that? And, and where is the um, underlying induced consent or the aim towards an induced consent and uh, Saskatchewan would, su would submit that with many of the hypotheticals that were um, spoken of in this case that those elements were sadly lacking and of course we know that uh, this court has been very helpful in in reviewing how we should analyze the hypotheticals and in fact paragraph 78 straight through to paragraph 91 but, but really, um, 
would those hypotheticals really fall under judicial common sense? Would there really be a conviction for luring? But can I just system? ask you, though, because what we do in our Section 12 analysis is look at the scope of the offense, what it captures, and that depends yes. on the elements of the offense. The, the, the points you were just making um, look at adding elements to the offense which are not there necessarily. And I think that's what part of the difficulty has been in this case, that there's no doubt that there is great harm and that there can be great harm even that's not evident. But, I, but it's, it's not the, um, a certain kind of harm or certain kind of conduct is not an element of the offense. And so I just, I, I'm just bringing you back to, you've said there has to be psychological manipulation. That's not what the element of the offense says. That may be the result in the vast majority of cases, but it's not a required element of the offense. Well, in making that submission, uh, Justice Karakatsanis, Saskatchewan is noting that that was in paragraph 122 of Rayo seen to be the heart of that offense, psychological manipulation. So I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go further on that. But then the other, the other issue is the issue of um, uh, cognitive deficiencies. And Saskatchewan courts have been grappling with that. And I would just like to address that very briefly. And, uh, you know, Saskatchewan courts have addressed this in the, in the sense that even though an offender may be mentally ill and suffering from symptoms of mental illness, as long as that offender has been deemed criminally responsible, the mental illness really becomes only then one factor in the crafting of a proportionate sentence. And again, in Hilbach, there we have the scope and we learned that in particular, Mr. Hilbach not only was Indigenous, an Indigenous offender, but he also had mental deficiencies. And that was one factor considered under the effects of the penalty on the offender but in the ultimate analysis, this court decided that the five-year sentence for the uh, prohibited weapon being used in a robbery was appropriate. So uh, I will just say that if an offender is found to be criminally responsible, then the offender is presumed to understand that the act is legally and morally wrong, and, and that is measured against society's norms. And so in the absence of evidence, any evidence linking the delusions or in the infirmity to the offending conduct, the moral culpability would still be high. You make a, yeah. you make a Ms. David, you make a very good point. Um, I wonder if, if it leaves room for any nuance as to the degree of cognitive impairment short of, short of something that would take someone out of the criminal process. I'm thinking of comparing the comments in Hillback to Darren advanced by, uh, 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 by the respondents, Darren being, a, at least to, to, on my read of it, a more serious form of cognitive impairment and one that might even lend itself um, to a higher propensity uh, for this kind of conduct. Well. Uh, thank you very much, Just Justice Kessler. But you know, I was even wondering in the Darren case whether or not that individual, on, on the basis of the facts that I read, whether or not that person was NCR. I, I don't know. I would submit I do not think that person really was morally, criminally responsible for his or her actions. But 
this court has to grapple with that. And one thing that's clear in the HV case, uh, there was evidence that the offender had asked the victim to get rid of all the texts. That's a clear sign of knowledge that something is wrong. And, and so perhaps these factors would, would, would assist you in your ultimate decision. But again, uh, I think that we have to assume that offenders will have competent counsel and that the appropriate motions will be brought and that the judge will make a decision very clearly and be able to proceed from there. So the final comment Saskatchewan wishes to make is with respect to the uh, perceived disparity between the one-year mandatory minimum for indictable matters and the six-month mandatory minimum for summary conviction matters. Saskatchewan acknowledges that prosecutorial discretion cannot factor into this argument to justify that gap. However, we simply note that a gap of six months can hardly stand as a justification that either provision is cruel and unusual. We have already gone on record to indicate that in Saskatchewan, the one-year mandatory minimum is a starting point for sentencing in indictable matters. And like the facts in HV, the one reported summary conviction guilty plea in Saskatchewan involved a sentence of four months when the mandatory minimum for summary conviction matters was only 90 days. Even today, a mandatory minimum for a sentence of six months can hardly be argued to be a sentence that would offend the morals of society. Further, the Quebec Court of Appeal in HV affirmed the lower court's ruling that the four-month sentence which was imposed on the offender was not grossly disproportionate to the six-month mandatory minimum. Those are our submissions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Bark. Uh, good morning, Justices. As you know, Alberta's argument in support of the validity of the mandatory minimum penalties for child luring is built on the premise that luring requires a narrow, specific mental element. In other words, we assert that there's no non-serious way of committing this offense. And uh, I want to emphasize this doesn't depend on an interpretation of Morrison or, or anything like that. It's the plain wording of the section which uses the words for the purpose. This is what uh, requires a very narrow mental element. And it's this purpose that's essential to justifying uh, the minimum. And a trial judge uh, hearing a case has to rigorously assess whether the Crown has proven the purpose beyond a reasonable doubt. The concept of a purpose includes knowledge. It includes a specific intent it cannot be proved by recklessness. And uh, just, I won't go into this in any detail, but this court has considered this phrase in other contexts, including um, terrorism in Kawaja in 2012, and in Briscoe in 2015, the same phrase is used in section 21. So the court's jurisprudence on the narrow scope of uh, a purpose in criminal law is uh, informative here. What I'd like to do with my time, though, is to try to answer some of the hypotheticals that have been put in the earlier in the hearing. And I'll start with the hypothetical from James, as I understood the question uh, that was posed by Justice Martin. So this is a scenario where uh, an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old are in a, um, a legal relationship that may involve sexual activity. And the 18-year-old sends some kind of telecommunication to the 17-year-old requesting that she transmit 
a uh, explicit sexual image. And then uh, in James, the 18-year-old uh, receives the image and then passes the image to another 18-year-old friend. So in this scenario, uh, I respectfully submit, first of all, in order for this to be luring, the Crown would have to prove the purpose. So the purpose at the time the communications were sent must be that this 18-year-old was intending to commit an offense, which means he's intending to share the image at the time that he makes the communication. Because if he intends to keep the image for private use at the time of the communication, then it's arguable, if not completely clear, that the private use exception would apply. But if he has the specific intent to share this child pornography image with another person, then I say that a six-month minimum is not at all disproportionate to the gravity of that intention. And that is because uh, it's, it should be well known by now the harms that children may suffer when their pornographic images of them become widely distributed. Of course, the existence of child pornography is inherently harmful to society. But when child victims have their images that end up on the internet, end up seen by people at the school or, or whatnot, the uh, consequences are incalculable and potentially uh, permanent. So uh, in that hypothetical, I do respectfully say that given the narrow intent that must be proved at the time the communications are sent, uh, six months is not grossly disproportionate. Um, regarding the Darren case out of Alberta and other related cases about offenders with cognitive limitations, um, I would say this. My reading of the Darren case is that this in, is an individual who was right on the cusp of being able to be criminally responsible for his actions. And uh, it's true that sentencing an individual like this is always going to be challenging, uh, particularly when they've committed a serious offense. Um, Justice Jamal pointed out at the hearing yesterday, is not just a problem for the case of luring, it's a problem for criminal law and for any mandatory minimum sentence. Because a person with the cognitive abilities of, uh, of Mr. Darren could be charged with murder, could be convicted of murder in theory, if the Crown proved the specific intent to cause death. That person could be convicted of robbery with a firearm. And if it was restricted firearm, it, uh, he could be subject to a five-year minimum penalty. I submit that if anything, the challenge that these cognitively impaired individuals pose to criminal sentencing is less serious for luring than many other offenses. And again, it's because of the narrow mens rea that the Crown has to prove. Luring is purposive, it's goal directed. So to be convicted, the Crown has to prove that Mr. Darren intended to achieve a particular outcome, Mr. Darren, or any hypothetical offender. And in this context, I would note, uh, in paragraph 29 of that case, there's this medical evidence uh, that's called as a mitigating factor on sentencing. And the doctor indicates that Mr. Darren's ability to anticipate delayed outcomes is compromised. That's, that's a quote. I'll just summarize the rest of the paragraph. He's impulsive. He doesn't think, he just acts. So if this evidence had been called at trial, uh, I, 
I, I have difficulty seeing how it would have failed to raise a reasonable doubt about the intent. Just like if somebody with these profound limitations was charged with murder and they, the Crown would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they intended, uh, which is a very high test. And so I say respectfully though, for an offender, e even an offender like Mr. Darren, if this extremely high test is met, and if the court engages in that rigorous analysis to, to be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt about the specific purpose, then uh, a six month sentence may perhaps seem harsh, uh, but it, it does not reach the level of grossly dis gross disproportionality. So th that's what I respectfully say about the cognitively impaired hypotheticals. Do you have a, Mr. Mr. Berg, do you have any comment about paragraph 70 of that judgment where the court turns its mind to the impact upon Mr. Darren of a jail for six or more months on his life and disrupt structures in place allowing him to function um, uh, and uh, his potential vulnerability in jail is that is there any room to take that into account should there be no room uh, in your view and before before you answer I'm going to add a, 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 something which complements what Justice Kisira said when I was a trial judge I really was torn in sending some offenders to prison because they're vicious places and a vulnerable person is going to suffer in those places. And there had to be a very strong reason for me to put somebody into that kind of a situation who I know was going to come out worse off than when they went in. I agree that those are factors that have to be weighed. That's what makes these cases difficult. And uh, I don't put this answer forward as some kind of a simple answer that th this is something to be dismissed. But there are important purposes to sentencing beyond uh, a rehabilitation. There's important messages that have to be sent to society, including not just to offenders. We often talk about sending message to offenders, but it's also uh, victims of crime need to hear the message that if somebody does this to you, the courts will take it seriously. That message needs to be sent out and imposing probation does not send that message. Uh, and uh, so, of course, many judges would have an offender like Mr. Darren and not wish to impose any jail sentence for them. And I can see uh, it's unfortunate to have to do that. But uh, Parliament, within the realm of uh, Section 12, it's not grossly disproportionate given the gravity of these offenses and the important uh, legislative objectives that exist. You mentioned, Mr. Bark, the example of, you mentioned the example of murder, first degree, and uh, you know that uh, if you meet the very narrow high threshold for first degree, but the analogy sort of breaks down to some extent because uh, we also have uh, you know, second degree, we have manslaughter, so there's a bit of flexibility for the court uh, or for a jury in terms of how they deal with the obviously uh, reprehensible act of killing another human being. Um, in this case, we're sort of, uh, the court's sort of in a bit of a dead end because this is all they've got, right? And there isn't the flexibility that would otherwise exist. So I wonder whether the analogy breaks down to some extent given really it's uh, 
luring is really the only game in town. There's no other. So, and then, then you are sort of stuck with the, the mandatory minimum uh, without any ability, any flexibility, any nuance, any. Uh, so that's really the, the problem. I, I do have an answer, if I may have just a few yes, moments to uh, give that. Yes. Um, my position is that what distinguishes murder, and I'm not talking about first-degree murder, but murder is the subjective foresight uh, of, uh, of the death. That's what makes murder so different from manslaughter. And that is very similar to what makes luring different from innocent communications. It's the subjective foresight of uh, an offense being committed or at least facilitated. An, an offender must have that state of mind. And I say again, it's a rigorous analysis trial judges must apply. Uh, and it is that, so you make the point, it's not manslaughter is entirely different because there's no, uh, the, the mental element is very limited. So regardless of the extremely grave consequences of manslaughter, the uh, offense has no minimum, and rightly so. But luring, because of the grave uh, intent that must be proved in every case, the minimum is uh, appropriate in my respectful submission. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break of 15 minutes now. Merci. Thank you. Alors, uh, Maître So. Mr. Paquette, thank you. Justices, for the respondent side, we will also follow the Hill's structure and we will look into the structure of our factum as we had it written out. According to the respondent, this is the Superior Court's decision, which uh, made the constitutionality call, uh, is correct. The inconstitutionality statement is in keeping with Friesen. An analysis of Hills and Hillback also show that there are no errors in those rulings. And during my arguments, I would like to address some of the concerns of the court this morning, including that of Justice Kassirer regarding the nuance between Hills and Hillback. including cognitive deficiencies that was raised this morning. There are four main points following the public prosecution's presentation. First, we'll look over the sentencing, then the reasonably foreseeable situations in the current case, then the gross disproportionality applied to reasonably foreseeable situations, and the fourth point, reincarceration, 
Well, unless the court has any questions, I won't belabor that point since the, uh, it has already been addressed. Regarding the appropriate sentence, I won't go paragraph by paragraph through Friesen or Hills because, of course, the appellants have put a great focus on deterrence and dissuasion, uh, deterrence and denunciation, rather. But I would like to look at certain parts of Hills to then look at the appropriate sentences for those cases. Friesen as well. You're talking about Hills and Hillbuck? Yes, of course. I will also argue that, of course, Friesen is very relevant for the case at bar. However, Justice Kassir asked this question yesterday. It does not raise the threshold of moral blameworthiness. I think it's very important when we're looking at ranges of sentencing and sentencing, uh, determining the sentence, but in the case at bar, it does not justify the six-month mandatory minimum sentence. So, yes, uh, Justice Cote, I will come back to that during my arguments. Question. You're talking about the impacts of Friesen, but you also believe that it has an impact on society's and courts' understanding that society and the courts should understand about the uh, harms that a child experiences. With all due respect, Justice, uh, whether it be at trial or at the Superior Court or the Appellate Court, stereotypes and myths and things that were highlighted by this court in Friesen were not applied by the Superior Court or by the Court of Appeal. The appellants argue that Hood is based on certain factual errors, but here we're not uh, appealing Hood, we're appealing HV. Question, yes, but reasonable foreseeability is uh, taken into account. Should we consider it? And if we do consider it, through which lens must we analyze it? with the 2013 facts or the facts from today? Answer, yes, and I will come back to that when we'll talk about Hood a bit later, but Madam Justice, Hood is based on facts, but very reduced facts, because in Hood there were a number of um, offenses, including sexual touching. What the Superior Court did was it took a factual basis, which was not even the facts from Hood, and simply said, Look, it was used in Hood. We'll take that set of facts again and we'll analyze what the appropriate sentence is here. So, in sentencing and in the way the Nova Scotia uh, Appeal Court in Nova Scotia um, decided that imprisonment within the community was necessary for Ms. Hood, they took a factual basis and they pieced it together. As was done this morning, uh, Justice uh, Martin quoted a case this morning, other justices quoted other cases this morning, and in Friesen, there's Melrose, among other cases, but at the time, Hood was used as a factual basis. Not to explain, but to, but the scope of uh, Hood in our uh, submission goes above and beyond that. You won't be surprised regarding Hills, 
they look at finding the appropriate sentence and the situation must be reasonably foreseeable. We'll see certain uh, listed or recorded reasonably foreseeable situations which where the sentence in the community was found to be appropriate. And I understand that uh, some people want for the mandatory minimum penalty to be applied here even though it's only six months and uh, the sentence must always be, be proportionate at all time the sentence against an offender must be proportionate to what to the seriousness of the crime but also to the the offenders blameworthiness the seriousness of the crime was discussed in depth this morning and it's often what comes up in the appellants presentations but the seriousness of the crime what is it it's only looking at the crime the scope of the crime the seriousness involved and also all of the uh, specific characteristics of its commission that's also important and in this context the consequences are an important part of the exercise it was repeated in paragraph 58 of Hills, but at the time this court confirmed that uh, the worse the consequences of the crime, the worse the sentence will be. We will tie this into luring in a moment, but first let's look at moral blameworthiness. So in 58 of Hills, this court mentions what needs to be considered in blameworthiness. Obviously, the circumstances of the commission of the offense, including mens rea, the conduct of the person, the motivation, if we know it, of the offender in commission of the offense, and, very importantly, in the case at bar, also the lived experience of the person that may mitigate or aggravate uh, the situation, and this includes the mental capacity of the offender. Recently, this court said that it is possible after analysis to find that a sentence that has never been uh, handed down for a similar case needs to be handed down in the current case. There's a very, there was a very detailed analysis carried out by the Superior Court in paragraph 177, for example, among others. The Court of Appeal then first made an observation and this was important regarding and the analysis of the appeal courts motives uh, reasons rather most of them were the same as uh, at the superior court level and the uh, court of appeal said no error had been made at the superior court level so the reasons of the superior court are very relevant and important and Justice Lachance could not see into the future, but when we look at what she took away in her analysis, it, co it corresponds with Hills and the constitutional analysis and the conclusion regarding the gross disproportionality aspect and the analytical uh, rubric that was proposed by this court. Question, Mr. Paquette, your colleagues place significant emphasis on errors committed by the Court of Appeal in its reasons saying that 
if it first seems uh, to have an impact at the first stage, that will have uh, ramifications on the second stage as well. Answer. Well, I would refer you to paragraph 47. And a point from the appellant's uh, factum, which is a leading element in this case, is that before there was clarification in Hills, before going to find reasonably foreseeable situations that are uh, too removed from the current case, looking at this question of the factual basis of the reasonably foreseeable situation was important. And one of the points that often came back was that in HV, just like what is proposed in the factual basis of Hood, there was no particular proof of harm caused to the victim above and beyond what could reasonably be inferred from the facts. So we would say that in paragraph 47, we don't see any errors. And if there, even if there was one, I don't think it would have an impact on the second group of factors. Question. If I may, I would just like to follow up just to understand because I don't understand the fullness of your thinking on paragraph 47. In my opinion, it is clear. The Court of Appeals cites Friesen in that same paragraph. It is clear that there was harm for that child. It is clear that that harm was uh, whether that harm was uh, particular or not is is there was harm and in the file here today I've looked all around to find something that would explain the harm experienced by the child and I agree that there was not a clear discussion on that point of view and I do understand your point but I also believe we're not doing justice to Friesen and I may be mistaken if we if we say that this approach of a particular uh, proof is important but we we can we can presume we know take for granted that the child was harmed Yes, and their answer. Yes, and uh, Justice Kassir, I think this comes back to your comment earlier when you asked if the harm can be quantified, if there is a, a trial on the sentence and it's not possible to, it's not possible at that time to know what the harm in the future will become. And I think that's important. And I think that that was considered at the Superior Court. Look at the second paragraph of the uh, Court of Appeal. After saying that there was no particular evidence of harm to the victim here, uh, the Court of Appeal continues to say, the comparable factual circumstances here are not difficult to identify or imagine in jurisprudence. Take, for example, Morrison. Is it comparable? Is it comparable? Answer. Well, is Morrison comparable? I agree with you.
Justice Kassir, no, it's not comparable in any capacity. So therefore, without wanting to put words in anyone's mouth, your colleagues say that this mistake which they raise did have an impact on the court's analysis. Answer. Respectfully, Justice, I would say two things. Either there was an error because the Court of Appeal should have found that the sentence was demonstrably unfit when there was no particular proof, even if there was a very detailed uh, file, as we saw in Friesen, regarding the harm. In that case, I think the Court of Appeal could have uh, only made that comment regarding the first instance, and in our opinion, it doesn't have any bearing on the second analysis. Each factual case that is analyzed by the Court of Appeal is to see whether or not there was an error. And in that context, if there was an error, it wouldn't have any bearing on this case. On the other hand, I would also say, and I would like to come back, and I know someone also had a question. I haven't forgotten my question. Would you like to ask your question now? No, please continue answering Justice Kassir. Well, this is going to bring me to my arguments regarding the seriousness of the offense. Regarding uh, seriousness, Friesen tells us that we have to look at the adverse impact, uh, the reasonable foreseeability, and then the real impact. And how do you assess the real harm based on whether the, uh, the prosecutor, perhaps there was no choice, perhaps the victim did not want to speak, but it is nonetheless a Friesen criterion that we are to assess. When there is no specific proof, then there is this uh, reasonable harm, reasonably foreseeable harm. But contrary to Le Duc, as Mr. Cloutier raised, there is no specific proof of harm. We're not saying this is an aggravating factor, but it does allow us to situate ourselves on the specter, uh, spectrum of seriousness. It, it, it sounds like a mitigating factor in what you're, say, what you're saying. Uh, I'd say, Justice, that we can't start from the point that luring It, that luring, uh, if there is no proof of harm, well, we can reduce the sentence. But I am saying that it is something that can be taken into account. The Court of Appeal started from a factual case and where there is no, as is office the case, often the case, unfortunately, no specific proof of harm. It could have said, well, look at Le Duc, there's long-term harm cited. We don't have that. And the court 
decided to start to start from a case where there is no proof of harm. We're not saying it's less serious because it's just a case of fondling. We have heard what Friesen had to you said in Friesen. I think you need to be careful to, to, to use something as a starting point and then saying, well, there's no aggravating factors. Your colleague, Council Cloutier, mentions the Court of Appeal in paragraph 41. Since the minimum incarceration of six months is 33% longer than what the judge thought appropriate, she could have at this point uh, said she agreed with the Court of Quebec judge and invalidated the minimal sentence. And the uh, appellant says this is not simply a mathematical calculation. It, in light of Hills, I think that what's stated at paragraph 41, well, it seems to us obvious that this is an obiter. They're saying we won't touch the constitutional analysis because the lower court didn't do say do, do it. But actually, there's only a thirty. It's only thirty-three percent longer, and and then the comments continue. If ever the court had said studying a hypothetical, it's 43% more and therefore grossly disproportionate and not go, went any, and had not gone any further, that would be a different case. But this comment at paragraph 41, 41 doesn't come back anywhere else in the ruling. The Superior Court proceeds with an analysis of inter, an intermittent serving of 90 days citing the Array John, the, the Array ruling, and talking about uh, depriving the freedom of someone with no record. I do not believe that this error, if it is one, in light of Hills, we no longer find this type of ruling. Uh, uh, reasoning rather, but I believe that this is not a mistake at paragraph 41. This leads me, unless you have questions, this leads me to hypotheticals, reasonably foreseeable situations. Obviously, I'm perhaps noting a blatant situation, but once again, we're on, in a situation where the case will be decided on the basis of a reasonably foreseeable situation. We're talking about the, in hypotheticals, would this lead to a grossly disproportionate result? The Hills said, Hill said that hypotheticals are useful to ensure that the laws are effective. And, uh, of course, we're relying on the rule of law, the principle of the rule of law. Hills in 79 says that reasonable foreseeability does not apply to 
uh, only applies to the general interpretation. But you must also look at the entire population that would be affected by this law, concerned by this law. It's possible that Parliament set laws thinking of a specific type of offender without realizing that mandatory minimum penalties could affect others disadvantageously. This is one of the this is a response to one of the appellant's arguments we believe with regarding deference to the legislator's intention. Yes, you must respect the legislator's intent to enact a law that applies to a whole host of situations. But if it is so vast that it catches offenders who are far from the typical profile envisioned by the legislator, your, your colleague talked about the broad range of, of possible offenses. They said, yes, indeed, the scope is very broad, but the Crown must prove beyond all reasonable doubt that, the, that there is a very strong mens rea. That is that the offender knew that he or she was dealing with a minor Indeed, Justice Cote, and this brings me to the distinction between with Hillback. I think you need to be very careful about equating the specific intent and a high level of blameworthiness. There may be cases where, because of the actus reus, the specific intent seems to point to high blameworthiness. But in specific intent doesn't necessarily mean that there is high blameworthiness. I give you the example of Melrose and Darren in this respect. These are cases. These are cases. These are not cases where there are people are accused are not necessarily not criminally responsible. Darren fully understood what was going on, the, the nature of his actions. But because he had a specific intent, does that mean he has high moral blameworthiness? I'd say no, quite with all due respect. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But when Justice Jamal said yesterday that a cognitive uh, deficiency is has to do with almost everything in the criminal code. But if you're talking about a firearm being used, there's a degree of sophistication that isn't necessarily found in the context of luring. Luring, internet is available to everyone. And an accused with severe cognitive deficiencies living in his parents' basement that does not have sexual maturity and commits luring by op because the opportunity is there. There is a specific intent. He understands that it's wrong, but it's f this is a far case from uh, the specific intent to go and hold up a variety store with a firearm. 
armed robbery in the case Zwolenski, Zadeski, Zadeski. You, you know the case better than I do. I understand that there was a, a cognitive question here, PTSD, I believe, and stup uh, uh, drugs were consumed, and that led to the conduct, criminal conduct. Does that mean there's the same blameworthiness as Mr. Duran or Mr. Melrose because they all have cognitive deficiencies? I'd say no. I think we need to be careful about the actus reus. We know uh, it's uh, cyber luring. But it's too easy to say there's a link with the specific intent. And in fact, in Melrose, the court responded to this argument. Darren cites Melrose with a very long ruling and at the end, a probationary sentence. The specific intent is developed in Melrose, if you'll allow. I'd like to illustrate the argument at tab 16 of our condensed book. Paragraph 326 and after. This concerns specifically the specific intent offense. And the court in Melrose says, what is, is important, what is important to the degree of blameworthiness analysis is not so much the fact of an additional intention, but what that additional intention is. And then there's talk of uh, facilitating, facilitation. What does that mean? Does that mean that there's always a high degree of moral blameworthiness at paragraph 333? The conclusion is the mere fact that section 172.11b creates a specific intense offent does not, by virtue of the requirement of proof of a specific intent, particularize the degree of blameworthiness of the offender beyond the minimum mens rea required for conviction for the offense. And the last sentence, extremely important, the specific intention, intent feature of the offense is not by itself a signal that a threshold of high blameworthiness has been established. I'd argue that this is a significant difference. We talked about forcio in our factum, attempted murder, murder with a firearm, the minimum mandatory was maintained. There was a specific attempt. There was an attempt to murder. So there is. So one could argue that despite a, a cognitive deficiency, that, that in that specific case, there was a high blameworthiness. But if reason says that crimes against children are have a high degree of moral blameworthiness. Are you trying to go back on what was said in 2022? Not at all. I think Friesen was a necessary step in the jurisprudence. I think there's a difference between understanding that Friesen is a call for a higher sentence, uh, stronger sentences. Does that mean that moral blameworthiness 
has increased in uh, all around. And I think uh, that's a concern. The increase in rages does not mean in itself that there must be, that a mandatory minimum is justified. Courts of Appeal have said several times, many times, that mandatory minimums are not required when there's already prison time required. Look at Peranto. It's not a question of deciding whether it's necessary. It's that the Parliament has, this is the Parliament's intent. We're saying here, does the Parliament's intent pass the constitutional test? I'd say that I refer you to the third criterion of Hills. If, I, and I'll be arguing on about criteria, th the third criteria later, it's not the strongest. Is it truly the best way for Parliament to reach its objectives through mandatory minimums? When there's no uh, exemption possible, when it applies across the board, when, when no matter what there would be prison time, even, it's the par even if it's the parliamentary's work to do this, it is our job to decide if it's unconstitutional. We see this. So I would say that yes, it has to be taken into consideration for the third test. Question. The argument by the Alberta Crown earlier, Alberta Attorney General earlier, was interesting and I would like your take on it. So the quality of the mens rea if it is narrow Tating. is important for the purpose of facilitating. To commit. He says there is no non-serious way to commit the offense. What do you have to say to that? Is that a way for us to draw a parallel, perhaps with Hillback? Answer. Well, that comes back to the argument that I made to you regarding the specific intent is not in and of itself a demonstration that automatically the underlying uh, blameworthiness should be removed. I'm not sure if you wanted to specify your question. Perhaps I misunderstood. No, you are understanding my question. Is the quality of the thinking, everyone thinking in that same way, in light of the perpetration of the eventual offense, uh, participating even minimally in a same blameworthy conduct. There's no non-serious way to commit the offense. Answer. It always comes back to that. When we ask about the seriousness and the blameworthiness, it's always brought back to harm. It's always said, look, the harm is already, is always serious the harm to the victim, but I would respectfully submit that if we look at Melrose, Grenier, among others, there is harm 
often very serious. In Grenier, it was over a course of m months, and there, in Grenier, it was a teenager who had developmental difficulties. The harm was very serious. So, is that to say that the blameworthiness of that accused is always to the level of the same blameworthiness? I would refer to Friesen and one of the questions Justice Cote asked earlier. Yes, I think Friesen did increase the blameworthiness thresholds because some circumstances in the past would have been seen as trivial. And you talked about de facto consent earlier. On our way to Ottawa, we were talking about the de facto impacts, which is not necessarily uh, full participation. So that, for example, is a clear case. In Friesen, the court said, we must stop seeing these circumstances as being mitigating and including them in the analysis. And what is also said in paragraphs 90 and 91 of Friesen, that it must be taken into account. And still in Friesen, this court says that there are even rare cases where the accused will not even be aware of the harm that will result even if they do have the criminal intent. And also in Deren, there was no criminal responsibility, but if we look at the reasons of this court in Freisen, Viren seems to me to be a clear case when the accused didn't have a full understanding of the, of the consequences of their conduct. Justice Cote, there could be a conviction for luring, proving that the accused intentionally tried to psychologically manipulate the victim for sexual purposes. So if the Crown is unable, unable to prove that, but if the Crown was able to convict the individual based on this, I'm wondering how a cognitive deficiency would make the six-month mandatory minimum cruel and unusual? That's my question. Answer, I have 25 minutes remaining. We must also look at one of the tests in Hills, which is the effect on the perpetrator. And I would respectfully submit that that a certain type of individual should not be caught in the net of an offense. Let's go further. Let's look at the second test, the effect on the offender. And Justice Rowe spoke to this earlier, the consequences that imprisonment, even for a term of six months, on a highly vulnerable individual who is sent to prison, even though a suspended sentence could have allowed them to maintain their assets and their relationships with external individuals. And I would turn you to tab eight. When the individual was sent to prison, was subject to bullying. So it's a double sentence. They're sent in prison and they're sent to be abused in prison because they had a significant cognitive disability. And that is why I submit to you that 
we can talk about moral blameworthiness all day, but we should also consider the uh, existence or absence of cognitive disability on the impact on the offender. As a society, taking this into consideration, we see cyber luring is a serious offense. The mandatory minimum is six months. Will society be satisfied that this is what the legislator stipulated in drafting the law? When we look at the penalty, the penalty always has to respect Section 12. And what is the foundation of Section 12? It is not to inspire contempt in our Canadian society. So sending this individual with a cognitive deficiency to prison for six months is, with all due respect, an indication of gross disproportionality. For my remaining 20 minutes, I will refer to my written submissions regarding the quantum given in each of the specific cases. I won't necessarily have time to go through each of them in depth, but you also have the Gravel case, which is similar to what um, Justice Moldaver argued in Morrison. After the offense is committed, the offender is on the road to rehabilitation. And considering all the factors to be weighed, should not have received prison time and was given a suspended sentence. So if we look at Hills and the mandatory minimum of six months imprisonment, is that grossly disproportionate or not? And that brings us back to the arguments by the director of public prosecutions who said that uh, a six-month minimum is not grossly disproportionate. But if we look at Proux, I would say that this flies clearly in the face of precedent by this court. when the sentence can be carried out in the community. Regarding gross disproportionality, before I go into the three Hills tests, Justice Martin highlighted that a comparative analysis must be conducted. And this comparative exercise, when it comes to Roy, Melrose, Grenier, where there were suspended sentences, is much more evident we can see the constitutionality, we can see the constitutional vulnerability of the mandatory minimum. We have to look at each of the tests. It's clear. And I don't disagree with the Director of Public Prosecutions when she said the mandatory minimum will not always be grossly disproportionate. Each case must be looked at based on its unique facts. When it comes to Hills, what I understood from this court was that the sentence needs to be established and applied to the individuals. And then considering the facts and the sentence, each of the three tests uh, from Hills is carried out. Regarding the first test, which is the scope and extent of the offense, 
I will speak to you about what I have understood from Hills and Hillback to then apply that to cyber luring. When a sentence has a great variance in the consequences and the way it is committed, we can see in Hills at paragraph 129 what this court highlighted was that this offense can be committed in a number of ways. The consequences can vary in their seriousness. So are we asking whether or not harm was caused or whether there was a risk of harm? And consider how much mens rea impacted the blameworthiness of the offender. This court looked at Ferguson, Loxton, Latimer, among others, and saw that the mens rea is different in each case. And still in 131 of Hills, the gross disproportionality aspect is mentioned again. In Hillbach, paragraph 3, it's explained that some offenses almost always imply very serious conduct and consequences and that the perpetrator already has high moral blameworthiness. The danger is intrinsic and no matter in what way these cases are committed, the threshold for blameworthiness will always be higher. Here we have uh, robbery with a weapon, with a firearm rather, and at the basis of this offense there is an intrinsic risk that the situation will deteriorate, which is similar to what happened in Ferguson or Morrison. In Hillback, three of the four ways to commit the offense imply that the robbery did take place. There may be many ways to perpetrate the offense, whether it's by breaking and entering or with a weapon. So the court finds that there is still risk that someone will be injured. And I would like to draw a parallel with what Justice Jamal uh, asked yesterday, somewhat similar to Justice Kassir's question today. Here's what we see in Hillback. Even when individuals inspire sympathy because of their case, given the mens rea and actus rea, there are a relatively limited number of outcomes, and the person must have deliberately committed uh, an act that led to blameworthy harm. But if there is an individual whose profile uh, inspires more sympathy, well, we see that in uh, Hillback, the mandatory minimum sentence was still maintained. So regarding cognitive deficiencies, the degree of preparation and sophistication of the offense, in my opinion, changes the type of offense. And the, the damage?
or the fault rather, you said uh, that the damage to the child, the harm to the child can be taken for granted. Si on regarde, par exemple, le vol qualifié. That would, uh, the justification between, behind the MMP. Even uh, if we look at an armed situation, an armed offense, there's a reasonable probability that there may be harm, even if there is no actual harm. As for cyber luring, uh, in Friesen, there, for Friesen, there was a statement, observation made about assessing actual harm. The cases cited in Hillback provide for harm because three of the four cases cited had actual, actually took places, actually took place, caused harm. When you look at the scope of the offense, without taking into account the various cases, on the face of it, you don't have the same intrinsic seriousness of the offense as you do in Hillback, where there's a limited number of outcomes, and no matter how sympathetic the accused may be, the blameworthiness and seriousness of the offense are at their highest. Your learned colleagues, however, in paragraph 66 of the factum, we cannot say that there is no specific proof. We cannot accept that there's no specific proof of harm, genuine harm to the victim. We cannot counter that. But later in their factum, the appellants say the reasonable foreseeable harm should be taken into account. And that's the difference, we believe, in this case, in, in luring and in armed robbery. There is fault in every single, in both offenses, in, there's intrinsic harm. In the case of a sting operation, there is clearly foreseeable harm, if ever there were a real child. That needs to be taken into account in the analysis. But armed, when it comes to armed robbery, there will always be harm. In luring, there isn't always. Cyber luring, there isn't always genuine harm. I have 10 more minutes, so I'll talk about the scope of the offense and hills. If the legislator, sorry, I'm not as quick as you are. If the legislator had instead come up with two offenses, cyber luring, for example, a second one, cyber luring with an identified, with identified harm, you'd be for the mandatory minimum of six months. I'm not saying that. Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand exactly where you're going with this. 
you need to take this circumstance into account, Justice Kazura. You need to look at the scope of the offense and to what extent this offense intrinsically, and let's look at Hillback, let's go back, paragraph 658, there's mention of two real victims and the fact that the offense as such requires the presence of victims. I'm not saying that we shouldn't condemn cyber luring. That's not what I'm saying, but respectfully, it comes down to the difference that I argued with Friesen. Crimes against children must be sanctioned. They are morally reprehensible. They are serious. We should not note any extenuating circumstances where there aren't any. And we can't ignore aggravating factors. But that does not necessarily mean that all cases justify a mandatory minimum of six months. Not all offenders are, uh, have the same level of moral blameworthiness and deserve a mandatory minimum of six months. The scope of the offense means that there's always a reasonably foreseeable risk of, and let's take the example that uh, Justice Rowe mentioned yesterday, an ambiguous text message. Will the person, will the receiver understand the meaning of the text at some point? Perhaps yes. This is a reasonable, foreseeable possibility. One day that text, text message may be understood by the victim and there may be harm. Does that mean that there is genuine harm in that or real harm in that case? Along the same lines as in armed robbery where there's always a victim. Uh, you're not falling into the trap that the what reason says that luring must never be considered a victimless crime even when it is a police sting operation. The court maintains that the absence of a victim is a factor, but it should not, but not one that should be not be given too much importance. And the, here, I'd say the absence of a a victim victim harm is a factor. Does that mean it's an attenuating factor? No. If if you look at all the Hills factors, the effect on the delinquent, uh, criminal responsibility, or probably the probation. Uh, I have a question. On the requirement that luring involve uh, cyber communications or communications in the Melrose decision that you cited. Communication was done in person. So what do you do with that? You can have incredible psychological manipulation in person. But if there's only one one incitement to uh, take part in or to, to be sub to submit to a secondary designated crime, then right away it's a mandatory minimum. 
is it normal that we don't distinguish between cases that the mandatory minimum is required for a monstrous case of grooming, either in person or written. And, and we're not trying to give credit to the accused for not having groomed the victim, for not having manipulated psychological the victim. Look at the Gravel case, Dubé Gravel, where the two parties were very close in age, 18 and 21, under the effects of toxic substances. And there's a sexual discussion that takes part with their neighbor. And their text messages are serious if you take a look at them. The judge, however, after looking at the seriousness of the, offense, of the offense, the young age, the moral blameworthiness, which also comes in, uh, and the young age uh, is also present in Hills, the judge ends up giving a probationary sentence consistent with rehabilitation objectives. It's easy to say there's an absence of attenuating factors. But if you look at the continuum of moral blameworthiness, once you have this, you've got the appropriate sentence, would society be shocked? Would it, uh, uh, would it offend our society's sense of decency to then instead be required to uh, impose a mandatory minimum of six months? A few words before I uh, go to our next topic, and I have uh, several to be discussed with you. But when it comes to the importance of verifying mandatory minimums for similar offenses. I think it's an interest, interesting to look at other cases that um, give an idea of the intended crime in luring. The Court of Appeal in its ruling said it invalidated the 12-month uh, mandatory minimum. It wouldn't make sense to give six months, six months minimum to one offender and when a similar offense receives the 12 months. I think that the Court of Appeals ruling must be examined as a factual standpoint as well, a starting point as well. I've talked about the impact of the punishment on the offender. I'm not going to go back into detail, but it could be interesting to say that the absence of uh, mathematical calculation, six months, no, uh, 90 days, uh, in 90 days intermittent is not the same 
as six months if you've never been in jail before, if you're trying to rehabilitate. When you look at the scope of the offense, the first criterion, whether in Lloyd's or the grounds given, the, the motives in other cases, Justice Kara Katsanis's motive, uh, reasons, most cases see the mandatory minimum as not ideal in case, in many cases. Other factors, however, also suggest that the mandatory minimum isn't constitutional. With regard to the objectives of the penalty, I think we should go to paragraph 104 in Friesen and the that in some cases and this will this is the case in Rayo. In reasonable foresee reasonably foreseeable situations. When it comes to the penalty and its objectives, we're far from Hillback. A sentence of less than two years is rare. We spoke of the range quite a bit, and that was this morning, the case this morning with the appellants and their brief. Cyber luring comes with a maximum penalty of two years less a day for a summary conviction. In the time that's left to me, I'd, argue, I'd uh, submit that even with regard to the third criteria, sentencing objectives and the purpose of sentencing, we need to wa wonder whether society would be uh, uh, outraged by Mr. Darren, by the fact that Mr. Darren, Mr. Merrows, and others are sent to prison, have been bullied in prison. Why? Because that is what the legislator wants. I believe that the rule of law leads us to say that if these individuals are in an exceptional situation where the uh, sentence is grossly disproportionate, I think it is in other cases as well. Maître Réginal Victorin. Réginal Victorin. Alors, bonjour, messieurs, mesdames, les juges. Good day, justices. On behalf of the Montreal Defence Lawyers Association, I will make the following points. First, the need to impose harsher sentences is not the same as the need to impose a minimum sentence in order to achieve the objectives of deterrence and denunciation. Mandatory minimums are not the only way to achieve that. 
Firstly, the court reaffirms proportionality as very important in sentencing, even in the case of child sex crimes. The sentence must always be proportionate to the seriousness of the offense and the blameworthiness of the offender. Also, in child sex crimes, this aspect of proportionality must be applied according to the Friesen parameters. Secondly, in Friesen, the court recognizes that child sex crimes can include a wide range of conduct. And it is taking that reality into account that the court refused the Crown to create a countrywide range of mandatory minimums for all child sex crimes. Rather, the court decided that provincial courts must be allowed to determine the length of the sentence and the uh, starting point. That is found at paragraph 106 of the Friesen ruling. This would be most conducive to a fit and proper sentence. Judicial discretion is not um, something that hinders denunciation and deterrence, which must be prioritized and is not incompatible with other learnings from Friesen, even in the case of sex child, child sex crimes. Next, I would like to raise the following. Lure is a preliminary offense and is subject to a mandatory minimum at present, and it seeks to prevent the following offenses that could flow from luring. It is true that for most of the predicate offenses to luring, the legislator uh, did prescribe a mandatory minimums, or rather did not prescribe them. This is included this is includes a kidnapping of a person over the age of eighteen years under the criminal code, among others. To this we can add the fact that the courts invalidated certain mandatory minimums for predicate offenses, including sexual touching, which is at 151A, a possession of child pornography, 161.4A, and the five-year mandatory minimum at 172.2, and sexual assault with a weapon, which was also invalidated. The legislator does not stipulate any minimum mandatory minimum sentence for child sex crimes that are not also part of the predicate offense of luring. As an example, there's voyeurism, publication of voyeuristic materials, bringing a child uh, abroad, including to commit sex crimes and kidnapping of a child. The primordial objective is to of mandatory minimums is to protect children as we see in Friesen and this objective is just as important in cases with a mandatory minimum as for cases when there is no mandatory minimum established. Mandatory minimums for child sex crimes suggests that according to the legislator 
the mandatory minimum is not necessarily the only way to achieve the objective of protecting children under this provision. And we see that the legislator trusted legisla uh, the judiciary to determine the appropriate the sentence in cases of child sex crime. We are taking into account the fact that other offenses with similar circumstances do not uh, apply a mandatory minimum. Thank you very much. Alors, um, Caroline Sanini. Further to CDAS's submissions yesterday, we asked this court when conducting its Section 12 analysis to consider the situation of a young adult offender who is close in age to the recipient of their communications. On this point, CDAS has two submissions. First, youthful offenders have lower moral culpability, and this is one example of the wide breadth of circumstances caught by the impugned provisions. Second, youthfulness is one personal characteristic that often intersects with other layers of disadvantage, and the collective impact of these characteristics are permissible considerations under Section 12. I wouldn't uh, regard youth as a, as a, as a, as a factor that is uh, disadvantageous. Yes, we, we agree that youthfulness and youthful offenders are not necessarily overrepresented in the, in the justice system at large, at large, but they are consistently charged and convicted of child luring. And when, these, when this factor intersects with other factors, it, that's when we say this should be taken into consideration in your analysis. So um, the breadth of conduct and culpability captured by the impugned provisions is, was noted by Justice Moldaver in Morrison. He stated that Section 172.1 scope encompasses situations potentially ranging from a single text message sent by a 21-year-old young adult to a 15-year-old adolescent to those involving numerous conversations taking place over weeks or months between a middle-aged mature adult and a 13-year-old child. We submit that it's well recognized that younger offenders have reduced moral culpability when compared with their more adult counterparts. This includes offenders who are just beyond the cusp of adulthood. As this court recognized in DB, young offenders are entitled to different treatment under the law because age plays a role in the development of judgment and moral sophistication. Youthful offenders are more likely to be immature, impulsive, and to lack judgment. Given these considerations, case law has highlighted how rehabilitation is regularly, regularly seen as a primary sentencing objective for these offenders. We say there's a fine line between offenders who have just passed into the age of majority and their teenage counterparts. For new adults, rehabilitation is still a key objective in sentencing. And as the Man Manitoba Court of Appeal noted in Leask, the transition from statutorily defined young person to adult should not be marked by an immediate abandonment of rehabilitation as the primary goal for such offenders. As the age disparity between an offender and a victim increases, so do factors that lead to more significant moral culpability and bear on the gravity of the offense. Those factors logically bear less weight when the age disparity is narrow. So we say that judges typically account for these considerations through their discretion in sentencing, 
and they may also account for them pursuant to the close in age exception in the criminal code, which applies to other sex offenses. This exception does not necessarily apply to, to child luring itself, which is inchoate. It also does not apply to the reasonable hypothetical posed by Justice Martin in relation to the hypothetical from John. As the court recognized in that case, the only possible exception would be the private use exception set out in Sharp. However, that exception did not apply in that scenario because the sex at issue was forwarded on to a friend. Recognizing the absence of that defense to the hypothetical, the mandatory minimum sentence in John was struck. We say that if luring is added to that hypothetical, the same considerations apply with respect to the unconstitutionality of the minimum sentences at issue. Mandatory minimum sentences preclude a sentencing judge from exercising their discretion in order to meaningfully take into account an offender's youthfulness and prospects for rehabilitation. CDAS agrees that in criminalizing this conduct, Parliament was required to draw the line somewhere. That decision must be accorded deference. However, any such attendant punishments still must accord with Section 12 of the Charter. Where a sentence is imposed on a young adult offender whose conduct lies at the lesser spectrum of culpability covered by the impugned provisions, it may be constitutionally infirm. We note also that this factor should be considered in the Section 12 analysis, as I've mentioned, along with other reasonably foreseeable layers of disadvantage that may intersect. These include the possibilities of cognitive impairments, indigeneity, and offenders who themselves may have been subject to abuse in the past. Some of those intersecting factors were recognized by Justice Karakastanis in her considering reasons in Morrison. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, replique. In reply. Good day. I think it's very important for the respondents to discuss the blameworthiness. I think this is very relevant in the case because when there is mens rea, in our opinion, there is always blameworthiness. I'll cite Melrose that the respondent mentioned talking about how the blameworthiness, how there is almost no blameworthy conduct. And I would say that in Melrose, that was an error by the judge because the judge was confused between the seriousness of the offense and the personal circumstances. In Melrose, the same mistakes are committed. As in uh, Bertrand Marchand, the sexual touching occurs before the case continues and there is planning with the child to have further sexual touching and it's argued that the blameworthiness is reduced because the person wished to express their emotions. That's at paragraph 336-337. I think that indicates a misunderstanding given that the act transpired after the fact. I would also say regarding specific mens rea, as one of the questions was asked, uh, some of the mens rea is taken away from an individual who has cognitive deficiencies. 
So when there's mens rea, there is imprisonment. But if there is reduced blameworthiness, that could detract from the imprisonment. It would amount probably to imprisonment within the community. So, in relation to that, if there is imprisonment within the community that is judged to be the appropriate sentence, the difference between uh, prison in a penitentiary between 6 and 12 months, I would say that that would be uh, incompatible with Sharma. In the Sharma ruling, it was up to Parliament to decide whether or not the offence was serious. And the fact that there was uh, imprisonment or imprisonment within the community was relevant. And in Hillback, the court mentioned that to save the very serious sentence in Hillback, the need for blameworthiness was at paragraph 165. But in all of the cases, the offense was serious, blameworthy, and causes harm. And the personal circumstances are a second component. They do decrease blameworthiness, but they are separate. I would like to uh, direct you to tab 27, where the Court of Appeal says, Vendors are considered separately from the seriousness of the offense. They do not lessen its seriousness. Personal circumstances where applicable are considered independently to the appropriate sentence. Donc ici, et... So here, I will quote 65 from Hillback again. There is an offense. It is blameworthy and it has serious consequences. And respectfully, I submit that you must use a deference to the judge that decided to use the mandatory minimum. Yes, it is difficult to investigate the impacts of a crime, especially given the internet and the consensual aspect. So it's very difficult for the legislator to look into these aspects. And the gross disproportionality of sentences of four or five years, like in Hillback, well, here we see that a mandatory minimum of six months can be inappropriate. And the difference between those should not lead you to believe that this does not respect Section 12. Merci, Maître Duval. Uh, et merci à tous les avocats. Thank you, Mr. Duval. Thank you to all lawyers for their arguments. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.